Matthew chapter 5. Now, as we have um, continued to move through the Beatitudes, I I want you to keep the first one on the front of your brain. Right? What's the first one? What's the very first Beatitude? Do you all remember? Blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. For what? <laughs> Come on. Blessed are the poor in spirit for what? They, that's the starting point, right? That's the, that's the place where they enter in. That's the, that's the gate, okay? As we continue, because now we've started to work through, so we've gone through the pathway, but now we're getting into the portion of the Beatitudes where we're talking about the quality of people that it creates, the type of people that it creates. And that's going to be where we're going to be going today. But always in the forefront of our minds, we have to keep step one in. And then the poor in spirit, what does that mean? That means that you know in the depths of your heart, you've got nowhere else to go but Jesus. I'm poor in spirit. I'm broke. (laughs) I ain't got nothing else. And you saw this in the quality of the disciples because they said what to Jesus whenever he attempted to send them away? They said to him, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. They were poor in spirit. They knew they couldn't do anything else. They knew they required Christ. So as we continue to work through the Beatitudes, you must, you must, must, must keep that first one in your heart. And you're going to see why here in just a little while. Today, we're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to go straight into verse 8. Take a look with me there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. This one's tricky today, okay? And you'll see why in a moment. Blessed are the pure in heart. Whoa, we're already all in trouble. For they shall see God. We're in worse trouble. Let's pray, and then we'll get going. Father, I thank you that you are good, and that you help us, and that you teach us and instruct us according to your word. I pray that you would do so this morning, that you would so faithfully teach us as your people. Don't leave us where we were when we came in, but transform us, refine us, sanctify us, change us, challenge us, Confront our sin, convict us, and then comfort us in the grace of repentance through the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see our sin this morning and confess it with joy because we want to see you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, It looks like nobody's seeing God, so we might as well pray and wrap this sermon up, okay? But let's actually go back and ask this a different way. Phrase it as a a question. Let's think about it like this. Who would would want to see God? Who would would want to? If you go throughout the Bible, what is the, the repeated appearance of God always coupled with in the Old Testament? It's fear, right? Whenever they would encounter God, think, think, about, uh, think about Israel, whenever the, the glory cloud falls on Mount Sinai and they're standing off in the distance, what does Israel say to Moses? The nation says, hey, you go over there, we're not going. You can tell us about it, you can bring his words back to us, we're not going anywhere near whatever's happening on that mountain. They were terrified. What happened to Elijah? 
Whenever he came into a close interaction with the God of the universe, he cries out, woe to me. Okay, now, like, for those of you that don't know, woe is not like this poetic, wax, snap your fingers, play the bongos kind of word like it's used today. Woe is, I am without. In fact, he finishes the statement, woe to me. He says what? I am undone. He means I'm, I'm coming apart at the seams. I am a man of unclean lips. I, I, I can't do this. I have been burned and, and tossed aside. What happened to, to Israel whenever they realized who Jesus, I'm sorry, not Israel, excuse me. What happened to the disciples? Well, you know, that's debatable. What happened to the disciples whenever they were in the boat with Jesus and Jesus calmed the storm and they realized that it was God in the boat? Their reaction was not what we would think as contemporary American Christians, which is, yay, Jesus is here and he stopped the storm. When he stopped the storm and definitively proved to him, to them, that he was God, their reaction was terror. Why? Because God was in the boat. You see, over and over and over again, whenever God appears, fear follows with those who may see him. Over and over and over again, which begs the question, who would want to see God? We, it, this, is, this is hard for us because we are in a mostly Western, contemporary, evangelical, squishy church society. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Squishy church? Like, we're, all, we're, we're big on our, on our feelings and on our emotions and how God is just, God's just love all the time. And that's, that's how all of it works and how he can be universally defined. That's, it's a society that stokes its emotions. It's a society that, that has its religious experiences as climaxes and, and would never, ever judge anyone or require anyone to change. He loves us just like we are, says our contemporary Western American Christian culture. We are all God's children, says our contemporary squishy American Western Christian culture. Whereas Jesus made it very clear that some of the people who were God's children were actually sons of Satan. Definitively so. Whereas as the prophets of the Old Testament and the prophets of the New Testament rejected and rebuked the Pharisees with harsh language because of who they were and what they were doing. This, this, is, this is squishy God concept. We have to kill it. This is the, one of the biggest things, I'm convinced, okay? This is one of the biggest things that we are waging war against as Christians today is this weak, effeminate, squishy definition of God that we have today. God always inspires fear, reverence, and awe when he shows up on a scene. Always go read the manifestation in Revelation in the throne room. They're bowing down. They're throwing their crowns at his feet. They're responding with awe and high degrees of reverence. Not Jesus is my homeboy bro level stuff. If we can understand that and see the definition of God, we can understand what this beatitude is getting at. Who would want to see God? God's terrifying. Joshua falls on his face before the angel of the Lord whenever he appears. 
Elijah cries out, woe to me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. The disciples realized that Jesus was in the boat and he was God and they were filled with terror. Do you see it? But, but, they shall see God. There's still something there, isn't there? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you sense it? There's still a, there's still a draw, an air, a, a desire within all. Like, okay, so now we've been fully educated and fully informed that God should terrify us, right? And God historically, every time that he appears in the scriptures is terrifying. So much so that people just fall on their faces before him and they won't even get up, okay? But there's something that that pulls at us here. But they shall see God. There's something deep-seated in, in your soul, in the, in the center of your being, that even though you know the terror that you should experience, even though you've been fully warned and fully informed, you still want it. Right? We are some schizophrenic people. But it's true. We've been instructed and informed on the actual character of God. We know how he works. We know that we should be terrified of who he is and what he's capable of and what he's done and the judgments that he's poured out upon the world and how much we deserve all of those judgments. We've been fully informed, but yet, but we still want it. There's something about that expression, they shall see God, that, that draws us. It's really difficult to characterize and explain, isn't it? But it's, but it's still there. You, you want it. We, for some crazy reason, we, we want to see him. Why is that? Even after all the warnings and all the demonstrations of his unrestrained power and terror, every time someone does see God, we still want to see him. Why? Why is it there? It's because you remember. Okay? Now I'm, I'm deep diving here, so just hold on with me for a second. It's because, it's because you remember. That's why even after seeing how terrifying he actually is, how his righteousness has destroyed the unrighteousness and laid waste to the world, it's because you remember. What do I remember, Pastor? You remember at a deep level what you were made for. You were made to commune with God. Undivided unrestrained. You were made to, to know him. That's what was so amazing about the garden of Eden. There was no division between man and God. 
There was no separation, no distinction. You were created. Humanity was created to have relationship with God. This is why humans exist. Humans exist because the Trinity in its perfect love for the three parts of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, overflowed with that love and created us as human beings to also participate in that love with God. You were designed for it. You were made for it. That's why you still want it. That's why when you see God pour his wrath out on the unrighteous and while you know the condition of your heart is unrighteous, you still want him. Because you know without him you're empty. Because you know without him your life's a vapor. Because you remember the way things are supposed to be. Adam had this communion with God. Adam had proximity. Adam had closeness. And we were all made for it. And we lost it. That's why, it, that's why it's empty, right? That's why nothing else fills your life. That's why your spouse can't replace him. That's why your promotion at your job can't replace him. That's why job security and financial security can't replace him. That's why the shiniest toys can't replace him. That's why you having as many kids as possible can't replace him. That's why your retirement plan can't replace him. That's why your general joy and contentment in life can't replace him because nothing else fills the hole. Nothing. You were made for that one thing to see God. And we've lost it. We've lost it. When sin entered the world, a separation came into being. Now you see this manifest itself a ton of different ways throughout the scripture, right? In the the Garden of Eden, how does the separation manifest itself? Do you all remember? So Adam and Eve, they sin, they fall. God does what? He throws them out of the garden and put what's Puts what guarding it? A flaming sword. Angels. Separation. Do you see? They're not allowed in anymore. In the, in the Old Testament, whenever, whenever we see God appear to, to Moses for the first time, how does he appear to him? He appears to him not as God. He appears to him just as, a, as a, an appearance of a, of a bush that's on fire. And he tells Moses what as soon as he gets close to the bush? He says what? Take your shoes off, son. (laughs) You're in my house now. You're on holy ground. Shoes off. Separation, distinction. When we see the tabernacle and the the temple in the Old Testament, what is the the distinction of separation between the, the most holy place and the holy of holies? Do you remember? The veil. And that veil, listen... Go, go do some historical research and a little bit of understanding of what that veil was. We think of a veil and we think of this pretty sheer satin cloth that hangs up. Oh, look how lovely it is. That's not what that veil was. That veil was like six or seven inches thick of solid fiber. It was heavy. It was, it was much, very, very difficult to move. And only one person went into the Holy of Holies. How many times a year? One time. And it was only the high priest, and it was only after he went out through rigorous, rigorous routines of purification and repentance and offerings were made on his behalf. And even then, whenever he went in, what did they do to him? They tied a rope on his ankle. Why? Just in case he forgot to confess something and he died while he was in there. They didn't have to go in to get him. They could just drag him out. 
that probably means that they had a little bit of experience with that. Do you know what I'm saying? They learned that once the hard way, he smelled real bad for a year. They were like, we're not doing that again. (laughs) Put a rope on his foot. We, We learned our lesson the hard way. There was this separation, this distinctive separation. Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now let's think about this for just a minute. What's the purpose of the separation? What's the purpose of the, of the, of the separation between God and man now that sin and unrighteousness is in the world? What's the design? It's so you don't die. Right? Man shall not see me and live. The separation is grace. It is love. It is protection. God is completely and totally holy. And in our unholiness, we would die in His presence. His glory would consume us. But we still want it. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? We still want it. Because we know it's missing. Do you see? Because we sense it's missing deep inside of our souls. We sense that there's a gap between us and who we were meant to have relationship with. Between us and, and who marriage is supposed to be a picture of. Right? Your relationship to your spouse is supposed to be a picture of God's relationship to His church. That degree of intimacy. Imagine how fulfilling your marriage is. Imagine how much more fulfilling your relationship with God is if that's how fulfilling your marriage is. Do you see what I'm saying? You were made for that. And that's why we still want it. And we, and we chase it through all kinds of messed up, broken, and, and evil means we do. This is, this is the motivator behind the emotion-driven, charismatic worship services, okay? The, the emotional high that's created, that, that, that is supposed to replace the actual presence of God. They, they're inside of the, the hyper-emotional, the lights come down, the fog machines come up, the, the bass drum drives, you know what I mean? The beats drop a certain way, and then everybody's hands go up in the room. It's engineered for that. Do you get what I'm talking about? Have y'all never been to one of these services before? Okay, if you just go stand in the back, here's my challenge for you. The next time that somebody invites you to go to hang out at one of those big, emotional, charismatic services, go stand in the back of the room and just watch. There is orchestrated a moment where the lights go down, the words come up, the beat drives, there's a drop in the music, and watch the room. Everybody's hands go like this. That's engineered. It's an emotional experience. And they've replaced the presence of God with emotional manipulation to bring you somewhere. Are you following with me here? We, we chase the closing of this separation by chasing a feeling. And God is not a feeling. He's not, he's not an experience for you. God is the God of the Bible. He's revealed in the scriptures. You want proximity to him? Pick your Bible up and read his word and learn how to get close to him. It's not through your emotional manipulative experiences. It's through pursuing him. Draw near to God and he will what? 
draw near to you. And how do you get to know anybody? You talk to them. You commune with them. The experience of worship, the driving beats, the lights, the story arc, the drops, all of it's organized to engineer a certain emotional climax that Americans, Christians, and many of us, including myself, as fools, have taken to believe is the presence of God. And it's not. It's the presence of your feelings and how easily we are manipulated. This is the motivator behind the the, the pursuit of that closeness of God is the, motiva- is the motivator behind the iconography and the mysticism that we see ever present inside of the Roman Catholic Church. It's the same thing as the, as the non-denominational high-production light shows. It's the same thing. It's just a slightly different flavor. Do you see what I'm talking about? It, it's engineered to create a certain response inside of the attendee. We, we see the same thing in, in psychedelic drugs. Many people opt for psychedelic drugs. I love that we have such a diverse church, and we have so many people in this room right now that are recovered drug addicts. Amen. And y'all who know what I'm saying is true, by experience, should amen louder so the rest of our brothers and sisters can experience this through you and not for themselves, right? So y'all listen. This is the same idea of pursuing psychedelic drugs. Many people use, and they often claim that they're using them for religious experiences, and I'm not joking. Amen? I I do some psychedelics, and I see God. I see God. You heard people say that before? It's a thing that's moving on in these worlds. I'm not joking. They put themselves into a delusional state so that they can see God. And very often, they do see something. And it ain't God. Right? Right? Can I, are you all amening? Can you hear me? I've had many a conversation with many a person, members of this church, who have tripped real hard, okay? And they see something, and it's not God. It's the devil. And I'm not kidding. Have conversations, ask the questions, and you'll see that it's consistently true. They see something. They're taken to some kind of ethereal religious spiritual experience. They're taken to something, but it's not the Lord. It's the enemy, which is not surprising because the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. What are those things going to do to you? They're going to steal your soul, kill you, and eventually destroy you to the uttermost. The, the, the relativistic spiritualism does this for us too. The, the new age spiritualism, do y'all know what I'm talking about? Um, there's this, there's this trend that's happening where um, suddenly everybody stopped trusting uh, government-funded medicine. I, shocker, I know. I don't know what happened in the world, but somehow the whole country decided at the same time that maybe we shouldn't trust government-funded medicine. I don't know. Maybe there was something in 2020. Who knows? Anyway, so, but what wound up going on after that, what wound up going on after that is that people started to look for alternative forms of, of healing. And I, I personally think that's great. Because I, I believe that the primary responsibility for the medical care of a family rests on the parents. Okay? Um, now, that doesn't mean never go to the doctor because God has given us a good grace and good gift of medicine, and you should pursue that. But, I mean, go talk to any of the mamas in our church, and they can tell you 95% of the time exactly what's ailing your kids <laughs> before, before they even see them. You know? Like, we've got, I don't know, like 14 nurses in the room that aren't actually nurses. They just got five kids, and so they've got the experience of it. It's a very important thing for us to understand, but there's this new age healing thing that popped up, this new trend. 
And it's actually not new at all. Um, the, the chakras, the, the tarot cards, the magically charged moon water. And I, by the way, I'm, I'm referencing things that all happen within two blocks of my office, which is right over there. I didn't Google this on the internet. This is right here in our backyard. The, the meditations, the yoga chants, all of those things. It, it's, like, it's like a choose your own adventure book. And they're trying to just see if we can have a religious experience and, and see God. Even the secularists today fight so hard against the belief in God. Okay? But here's the deal. If an atheist, you know what the word atheist means? Ah, theist, no God. If an atheist actually was an atheist, he would not care. He would move on with his life. He would not give regard to the Christians who believe what they believe around them. And yet they commit their lives to throwing God asunder. Why? Because it's not about God. It's about proving to themselves that he's not real. Do you see? It's not about disproving God for the benefits of others. It's about they know in the deepness of their heart that something is missing inside of them and only God can fill it and they don't want it to be true. And so they rage. Why do the heathen nations rage for the same reason that the atheists do? We all want to see God because we're all schizophrenic. Every human being who walks the face of the earth knows that there's a gap. They know that something is missing. They desperately desire to close that gap. And you can. Well, not you. But it can be closed. You see, this is what the Tower of Babel was. If you're doing our Advent devotions with us, you've seen this. The Tower of Babel was man's try, attempt to close the gap to God himself. Just like all these other attempts was. We've been fighting as hard as we can to get back to God again and again on our terms, on our terms. But God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that he would send a dragon slayer to crush the head of the serpent. That God would send it. Not that man would get their act together. Not that man would become righteous enough. Not that man would be able to finally pull themselves up by their bootstraps and be sent into the, into the heavenly realms by their own power, by their own authority. No, God would do it. Through the seed of the woman, he would send. He made a promise that the dragon slayer would come to crush the head of the serpent. And that's the way that we are restored to relationship with God. God promises that one day you will. That innate desire that you have to see God, that schizophrenic desire, <laughs> God promises that one day it will be fulfilled because he put it in your heart and he desires that it would come to pass. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Revelation chapter 22, verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And again today, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Okay, preacher, I got it. But I'm not pure in heart. <laughs> 
I understand why I have this desire. I understand why I'm broken. I understand why I'm trying to pursue it. But I am not, I don't meet those qualifications. Got it. I think a better way to understand what's being said right there is clean. Okay? If you, if you go back and do the words, pure in heart, I think a better way to understand that would be, would be clean. Now, there's lots of Old Testament references to think about. There's the clean and the unclean. Like when I say that word clean, that, that should pop categories into your brain a lot better based on the Old Testament if you're, if you're familiar with it. But, but there's a lot of Old Testament references to think about, and I don't want to go through all of them right now because we don't have enough time, but they all culminate in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11. You can flip there if you've got a paper Bible. You can go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 15, verse 11. If you don't have one, just write it down and go look at it later, reference after this. Jesus gives a clear teaching on what clean and unclean actually mean. And he says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth defiles a person, but what, what comes out. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Why? Because it's an indicator of what's inside. What comes out of you is an indicator of what is inside of you. Are you following with me? It's, it's because we all have a dirty heart. It's not what goes into a person. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that is indicative of who he or she is. It's because we have a dirty heart. This is why on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says it's not just adultery, it's lust. You don't just get in trouble for adultery. You get in trouble for lust because that's a condition of the heart. You don't, you don't just get in trouble for murder. You get in trouble for hate because that's a, that's a condition of the heart. He's saying that you are the way you are because of the way you are. <laughs> Do you get it? He's saying that you are the way you are because of the condition of the heart within you. Your heart is broken. It's sinful. It's dark. It's made of stone. This is why we sing songs at our church that probably no other church sing. This is why we sing songs like, like Poison Tree. That, that says things like, come and dig me up, tear out this rotten heart. I, I have no good fruit. I need you to do it. This is, this is why there are lines in, in Come Thou Found, a real common song. But have you ever sung that verse and thought about what it says? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. See, we're, we just, we're so used to that verse, you might just gloss right through those words. Now, I, I've got some nuance and some details on that verse I'm not going to go into today, but this is why we sing these types of songs. Songs that make it clear to us and anyone else in the room that we've got nothing apart from Jesus. This is why we, we read psalms at the beginning of the service that, that the Lord is going hard after the unrighteous. Not because we're self-righteous, but because we know apart from God, that's who we are. Because his judgment will be poured out upon us. Because we have the brokenness. We have the sinfulness. This is why Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs full of dead bodies. Because they were dead on the inside. They had dead stone hearts. They tried to clean the outside. You know what I'm saying? This is the Western American evangelical church at large. We try to just clean the outside. So we can look nice. How are things going? How's your family? Good. 
Y'all, y'all doing okay? We're doing okay. Things going well. Yep, things are fine. Look, it's like everybody's got Instagram families. Look, this kid is beautiful and perfect. And don't you wish that your life was like mine? Yes. No. It's not until that you remember the condition of your insides that you can actually deal with the problem. And this is why I said at the beginning of the sermon to not forget the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because that's the entry point. If you know you have nowhere else to go, now you got a place to start. I got, where else will I go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. Where, what else can I do, Lord? You alone have the answers. You're the only one that can help me. I've got nothing left. I can't do it. The Pharisees tried to clean the outside, but they couldn't fix the insides. You can't either. You can't fix your dirty, disheveled, messed up, broken heart. You can't take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. Only God can do that. And this is why we have to go him, go to him to do it. Now this right here, this moment right here, okay? This is the epiphany moment for all believers. So I want you to treat the next few minutes carefully. This is the epiphany moment when they realize, when they realize in the depths of their being that they cannot do it apart from Jesus. They can't. God, I I can't. I can't do it. That their righteousness is as filthy rags, as Isaiah says. That they can't clean the outside of the tomb. They can't even get to the outside of the tomb unless Jesus cleans the inside. And only he can do it. Why? Because only he can take hearts of stone and turn them to hearts of flesh. Because only he has resurrection power. He's the only one that can make you live again. He's the only one that can make any of us live again. Do you see? He's it. There's nowhere else to go. Blessed are the poor in spirit who know that's true. Because when they read Ephesians 2, it wakes them up. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You trying to fill that gap? You trying to to, to fill that desire within you? You're trying to fix that that longing to see God? Only He can do it. Only Jesus can do it. 
Not the new age techniques, not religious experience, not the drugs, not the psychedelics, not the contemporary lights down driving beat, big worship moment evangelistic services, none of those. Only Jesus can do it. And he does it by his power, his resurrection power. Okay, preacher, but what do I do? Isn't that funny how that's the inevitable question? Only Jesus can do it. Okay, but what, what do I do? Isn't that funny how that always comes up? <laughs> okay, okay. I'll say it to you this way. If you're asking, you're on the right track. Because here's the thing about the kingdom of Christ. He blesses those who come to him like little children. And how do little kids, it's Christmas. <laughs> Y'all know how little kids work, right? Little kids have this gift of asking, don't they? Like, they see the boxes hidden in, in the closet already. They see the trees are out, the presents are there. It's three days before Christmas, and little tiny kids have no problem coming up to you and making a few additional requests, right? They, they're fine with that. Hey, Mom, you know what else would really make Christmas great? <laughs> That's the way little kids work. There's a reason that Jesus said to not hinder the littles and to not keep them away because that's how he wants us to go to him. God, help me. I think I've got a dirty heart and I, I don't know how to fix it, but you can. Please fix it. <laughs> that could be your prayer. That could be it. God, I, I, I am broken. I am messed up. I am troubled. I am sinful. I am, I don't, I don't know what to do. But, but you can help. One of the greatest preachers in the world that is alive today, his prayer of salvation was so simple. Hey God, you know that thing I've been talking with, with my buddy about you doing in my heart? Now's good. What a great prayer. And that can be you. That can be you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. See, you're not poor in spirit. If you're sitting here right now saying, I think I'm, I'm, I'm all right, I'm fine. Well, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make the cut because you think you're fine. You think you got it together. You think you're righteous enough. You think you've handled it up. No, the requirement is poverty of spirit. The requirement is knowing that you have nowhere else to go. The requirement is knowing that your lying is much more than just a little problem. It's going to destroy you and kill you and put you to hell. The requirement is knowing that you're, you're lusting 
is more than just a a sin to be winked at, to be joked around with. It's going to destroy you and your marriage and your family for generations to come. It means that you know that your hatred and bitterness that wells up inside of your heart will culminate in death if somebody doesn't help you. And the only one that can is Jesus. See, that's poverty. I got nowhere else to go. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, you see, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, if you know that you have nowhere else to go, you go to God and you go to God on his terms, not yours. And his terms say, confess and repent. And then you go and you ask like a child. Dad, can I, can I have that? That's Psalm 51 verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Well, that's the psalmist saying, God, I got nowhere else to go. Can I, can, I, can I have that? I got nothing else. I got no other options. I got no other. Please help. Can I have that? And then, and only then, Can you see him? That peace that the world has been missing for the last 6,000 years, you can find it. That hole can be filled. That transformation of your life that you desire and you've tried every other methodology along the way and none of them have worked. It can be done, but you got to ask. You got to know there's nowhere else to go. You have to come like a child. So, you, are you tired yet? Are you ready to stop trying all the other methodologies in the world and actually run to the one who made it and knows how it works? Ask, knock, seek, confess, repent, and be made clean. And then, then and only then, will that hole be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's pray.